Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you like our interviews, press like and subscribe. Also leave comments. This helps us to continue to bring great interviews. The average American worker spends seven hours a day on a computer or digital device. Prolonged digital device use can lead to computer vision syndrome, also referred to as digital eye strain. This can lead to headaches, neck pain, poor sleep, and possibly causing children to become nearsighted, leading to a lifetime dependence on glasses. Today's guest, board certified optometrist, Dr. Brianna Rue is a national recognized leader in computer vision syndrome and lecturer in myopia management. Dr. Rue is a key principal researcher in myopia treatment and is the co-founder of Dr. Contact Lens. Dr. Rue practices optometry in Tamarack, Florida. Dr. Rue, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, excited to be here. So let's get started. What is digital eye strain? So digital eye strain, obviously we've seen an uptake, an uptick in everything that's going on because we are on devices more than ever. So digital eye strain encompasses a couple of things. We have obviously just sitting for longer periods of time is wreaking havoc on our necks and our shoulders and our hands and our wrists. And then you have behind the eyes where everything is going on. So you'll feel digital eye strain across the brow of your forehead and then we're not blinking enough as well. And so digital eye strain encompasses all of these things together. So you may notice, you know, two or three or four hours into your workday that your vision is blurry, that you get these little headaches kind of across here. And then also when you're looking at your computer and we're not focusing out enough, you'll notice that your vision is blurry because you're getting stuck up close. And so it encompasses all of those things. And that's what we have to be careful of. Well, somebody's staring at a digital device all day, you know, whether it's our kids now, the way school is, or, you know, professionals, a lot of people working from home, you know, they, they're staring at it and they're not blinking. From not blinking, what happens? So from not blinking, there's a lot of things that happen. We're supposed to blink between 18 to 20 times per minute. When we're staring at a device, whether that's a computer or our digital or our phones or a tablet, we blink between five to six times. This actually does a couple of things. We have little glands inside of our eyelids on the top and the bottom called meibomian glands. Meibomian glands are important because that's what secretes the oil onto our tear film. Our tear film has three different layers. We have a mucus layer, a water layer, and then this oil layer that slicks over the top of the tears. And so when we're not blinking, we're actually not secreting the oil. So that's why you may notice that you start to tear a little bit more is because your brain is telling your eyes that they're dry. 
So then you secrete more tears or the water layer, but not the oil layer. The oil layer is important because when we blink, we actually pull the layer, the oil out over the top of the tears to prevent them from evaporating. So when we go from blinking 18 to 20 times per minute to five, the glands do a couple of things. First, they get clogged, then they get inflamed, and then they start to die off or they start to shrink. And what we're seeing in kids is because we're not stimulating these glands enough is that the glands aren't even developing fully to their fullest potential. And this is a very hard thing to treat because we're, we don't have glands to actual tr actually treat anymore, which is why we have to be careful. So what are you telling your patients now to kind of prevent this? So there's a saying in our, our field called the 20-20-20 rule. So for every 20 minutes, you're supposed to look far away, down a hallway, out a window, far away for at least 20 feet for 20 seconds. We now know with new studies that 20 seconds is not enough time to actually release out your focusing system or get your blink rate back up. And so what we're talking to our patients about is for, yes, every 20 minutes, you should stand up and kind of take a full body break, stretch out your wrist, roll your shoulders back, take a couple of deep breaths because we're all hunched over. So we're breathing very shallow, which also, see, everybody just stood up when I said that. Um, and then obviously you're not blinking, so your focusing system is getting stuck up close as well. When we look or when we're studying up on a wall, right, that's why I'm talking to parents about kids on their devices, is don't have their device right on a wall because if you look out and up at a wall, you're not focusing out any more than you are on your device. So it's important to study next to a window or be able to look down a hallway. So the real rule is for every 20 minutes, look far away, down a hallway or out a window for at least one to two minutes and give yourself a full body break drink some water, roll your shoulders back, take a couple of deep breaths, blink your eyes, and then relax out that focusing system. So you're telling your patients to get reminders from their phones, from their computer. How are you telling them to remind themselves? Yeah, so there's a couple of apps that have been developed. Um, you can set a timer, which is a little more difficult to do. Um, and it, it's just being more conscious of what you're doing, right? So we can all get into our emails or get into something else where we're really ingrained in what we're doing and not take those breaks. For kids, it's important, especially during the classrooms, because now everything is online, that these intermediate breaks, when they get you know, a four or five minute break, we can't talk about outdoor time enough. So now that our kids are on devices for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours a day, they're not outside enough. Um, so this also, even if you can get outside for three or four minute break, that will help with a number of things. So you're in, you're in Florida. Do you recommend that where the weather is nice? You know, what, sometimes it's too hot, but where the weather is generally pretty nice. Do you recommend your kids do their homework outside? Not necessarily homework outside, but to putting it down, right? So when we say go outside and play, it doesn't mean take your, your digital device outside to play. It actually means go outside and ride your bike, run, go for a walk around the block, go be in nature, right? So if we take our devices with us, if we're just outside looking at our devices, we're not undoing anything that we did during the day. They, they have prisoners mandated to be, two hours, to be outside two hours a day, more than our children. Yeah, so prisoners are mandated that to have two hours of yard time a day. 
And there was a study done that looked at, that interviewed 10,000 parents. And they found that over 30% of parents, their kids actually spent less than 30 minutes per day outside. Um, that actually has a huge benefit. So we want our kids to be outside at least 40 to 80 minutes a day. And I think with pediatricians, it's kind of a, a global thing that we need to start talking about. My son, um, we've been to five different pediatricians in our group, and not a single one has talked to us about screen time. And so I love actually bringing up screen time with my parents and with my kids. I don't care if you blame it on me as the doctor, right? The doctor says, go outside and play. Um, having a son, I like to blame things on doctors too, right? Because it's easier. I don't have to be a parent. I can actually blame it on somebody else, right? And that's fine if we have to use these instances. But the getting outside thing, if we get outside at least 40 to 80 minutes a day, not only is it better for our health where we can lower things like diabetes and things going on, we're exercising, we're getting exposed to natural light, we're relaxing out our focusing systems and we can actually reduce the incidence of myopia by 25 to 50% by just getting outside or nearsighted. And there has been studies to show that people get cardiovascular disease from sitting all day just by standing up. And that's why people get those standing desks to try to prevent cardiovascular disease. Just by standing up every 20 minutes could lower your risk of getting heart disease. Yep, sitting is considered the new smoking, right? Exactly. So if we're sitting for eight to 10 hours a day, we've got no circulation going. And also it's going into other areas of our bodies as well as our eyes. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics, blue light. We did a whole podcast with Greg Nace on blue light. You probably know who Greg Nace is. He's the CEO of Blue Tech. And, uh, you know, outside our field as optometrists in the functional medicine realm, they're very big on people wearing glasses to filter out the blue light. Optometrists and ophthalmologists are much more uh, conservative when it comes to telling people to wear uh, filtering glasses, whether they feel that they don't want people to think that, well, that we're just telling them that so they would buy glasses. But there are studies to show, and many of them, although are, are in rodents, to show that blue light definitely damages the cells in the back of the eye, whether it's the RPE cells or, or, or the, you know, different types of uh, cells in the macula. And what's your opinion on blue light and how dangerous do you think it is? And do you think that we should be wearing blue filtering lenses when we're looking at a digital device? So that's a great topic to discuss because as we've seen, again, this uptick in people being interested in blue light with how much we're being in front of our devices, blue light is important for a couple of things. When we go outside, we're actually exposed to more blue light than we are on our computers for that amount of time. Blue light, we need it, right? So blue light is good because during the day, it actually suppresses our melatonin levels. We don't want melatonin or else we would just fall asleep, right? So when we're going to sleep at night, if you put blue light glasses on an hour or 30 minutes before you go to bed, what happens is now if you don't have any more devices and we don't have the sun, just think of it in terms of the sun, right? Sun goes down, our melatonin levels start to rise, so then we can fall asleep. We can fall asleep faster, we actually stay asleep longer, and we get into our REM cycle. So if we're on devices right before we go to bed and we take this hit of blue light, we can't, it takes us longer to fall asleep, 
we actually don't stay asleep as long as we should, and we don't get to our REM cycles. As far as the studies are showing that it's hurting our macula, I think that's still very anecdotal. I haven't seen a lot of real evidence. We haven't, if you think about it, we've only been exposed to this much blue light since the launch of the iPhone or um, handheld devices in 2008 or 2009, when they actually put Facebook on devices is when our huge uptick in device usage went up, right? So it's still too early to really show this science that there's an uptick in macular degeneration or detriment to these cells in the back of the eye. So I think we have to be careful when we're recommending this. What I've seen in my own practice is about, I can't tell who's gonna be successful with blue light glasses or not. The people that I think are gonna do really, really well with it say they got no relief from it. The people that are like, eh, yeah, I should probably try it or you know, blow it out of the water and say, wow, that really made a difference for me. So I think we'll keep on the blue light. Um, do you need a special glasses? Honestly, I think, again, just taking breaks is enough turning on off of your devices about an hour before you go to bed. This is super, super important in kids. I can't tell parents enough that there should be no devices in a room, especially handheld devices, right? Especially before bed, they just can't turn them off. Um, TV is a little bit different because we're talking about distance, right? The TV is a little further away than where we are on our devices. Um, so we can look away a little bit more but blue light's very interesting. So we need blue light to, so we don't fall asleep all the time. And then we don't need blue light so we can go to sleep. So if you look at those, and if we wear blue light glasses all day, um, I don't think we need them all day when we're on these devices. So again, going outside, you get exposed to as much blue light as you probably need. We've been exposed to blue light since the beginning of time. Um, and we haven't seen this huge uptick in macular degeneration and things like that. Obviously, we always recommend sunglasses when you're outside because of the UV spectrum of light, right? So our macular degeneration patients, yes, wear your sunglasses. We know that that is detrimental to the macula. So it's gonna be interesting to see as science um, moves forward on what we actually see is happening in these retinal cells, but we can't make any distinctions yet. Well, I think there's a difference between the blue light coming off the computer at 455 because it's unopposed the blue light from the sun is, is balanced by UV and infrared, depending on the, the, the latitude that you are, what, okay. that you're at, because the UV comes up at different latitudes in different parts of the world. But, that, but the blue light is balanced, and that's the way nature provided it for us. But when we're looking at the computer, it's unopposed, so it's like we're always looking at 12 noon. So like you said, it, it makes it more difficult to fall asleep of your pounding the, the, the digital devices right before you go to bed. But I am gonna put you on the spot here. Are you recommending blue filtering lenses to your patient? And if you are, what percentage do you want the lens to filter? Do you want it to filter 50%, 100%, 30% in a perfect world, or you're not sure? So I am and I'm not. Um, people are obviously coming in asking for this because we've seen feed after feed of that it's important that we need blue light. And then obviously there's this hit, this big industry push, right, to get it out there, which is, is great. We just, again, have to be aware of what it's doing. So we can put our phones on, you know, blue light mode or um, night shift mode. Um, you can also, again, just taking the breaks and being conscious of right before the bedtime. 
So I'm about a 50-50 in my own practice if I'm recommending it. If people are asking about it and they've done a little bit of research about it, I obviously want them to get a good pair that's not filtering out all of the blue light because we need some blue light. Um, but And then obviously when you put a blue light pair of glasses on, everything looks yellow. So that can also do some things for your brain, um, which is hard to get used to and put more strain on it. So we're recommending a filter that goes between 70 to 80%. But again, like you said, it's filtering out specific wavelengths. I don't want to I don't want to filter out all of the blue light wavelengths um, when we're doing something on the glasses. Right, exactly. So because coming off the computer is 455, so you want to make sure you're at least filtering out the 455. If the glasses you're using is only filtering out 400, it's really not really doing you much good. Let's let's change to the to dry eyes from wearing a mask. Uh, there was a doctor who coined a phrase recently uh, called MADE. And if you could explain what that means and why are we getting dry eyes from wearing a mask? Yeah, so MADE syndrome or mask-associated dry eye has now been a new coin or a new term that's been coined here. Um, so if you think about it, when you have your mask on your eyes and we're breathing out, the air is going directly up into your eyes so you may find yourself being really, really itchy in the corners. Your skin underneath your eyelids is probably really, really dry as well, as long as on the top of your eyelids. So it's wreaking havoc because again, number one, we're not blinking enough, so we don't have an oil layer to protect us from. And then now the aqueous layer or the water layer is just being evaporated so quickly um, that that's leaving our eye exposed. And so the allergies uptick that I've seen with masks has also been huge. And that's why we get itchy in the corners um, and then we're using more drops. So with maid syndrome, you just wanna make sure that your mask is fitted properly and that you don't get that airflow that's going back up into your eyes, um, that it's actually being blown, uh, blown out of the bottom of your mask. So that is very helpful when you're fitted, fitting for your mask. And how about artificial tears if people need it? Yeah, artificial tears, again, talk to your doctor. Um, if there's any inflammation on the eye, we wanna treat it. If there's an allergy, we wanna treat it. And if it's just the dry eye component, then you can use different things like artificial tears. Um, what I highly recommend is getting one that has a little oil component in it um, because that actually sticks to the surface of the eye. So you're not just replacing it with one thing. The thing with artificial tears is it's kind of just masking, not to, throw a pun in there, it's just masking the issue, right? So we have to treat the underlying condition. Is it because your oil glands aren't secreting oil? Is it because your mask isn't fitted properly? Is it because you're not blinking enough? So we can put drops in all day, but if we don't treat the underlying condition, then you're just gonna add more and more drops. So we wanna catch it early. I've noticed an uptick in styes. Have you noticed the same thing? And why do you think that is? So when we're touching our mask all day, we're touching obviously more bacteria is going around our eyes. Um, that also a sty is when one of these little oil glands gets inflamed or infected by a bacteria that's on us. Because we're touching, actually we're, we shouldn't be touching our face more, but we all are because we're adjusting our masks every single moment of every single day. So just be very cognizant of how you're adjusting your mask and where you're doing it. The other thing is we're not throwing our masks away enough or washing them well enough. So that's leading to more bacteria on these masks, which is right there along our eyes. 
So make sure that you're replacing your mask more frequently than you probably are. Um, and then also just stay away from touching your face. So that's why we've seen a big uptick in styes as well. And I probably, for the same reason that we're getting the maid syndrome, the dry eye syndrome, this, the, our breath coming up into our eyelids and the bacteria from, you know, the bacteria from, from breathing. Exactly. It's just over proliferating right there. And if you think about it with the mask, now the bacteria can get onto your eyelashes, it gets stuck there, and then it kind of, for lack of a better term, it just kind of crawls along the eyelids, eyelashes into your eyelids, into your little glands, hence you get the size. And what's the best way to prevent it as far as keeping the eyelids clean? There's a multiple different cleaners that you can use out there. Um, commonly, if you don't have access to one of these, you can just obviously scrub your eyelashes really good when you're in the, um, in the shower or at night. What I find, Carrie, is actually men are worse at this. Their eyelids are, look way worse than women's eyelids do because of the makeup thing, right? When we wear makeup, we really, really scrub, scrub to get it off. Men, because you don't most of the time, wear makeup, and so you're not really conscious of actually cleaning that part of your face. Um, so we see a lot of blepharitis, which is the little flakes, kind of like dandruff that lives on your eyelashes. Um, there's multiple cleaners that have a little tea tree oil or coconut oil in it. Tea tree oil kills these little bacteria or these little mites that live on us and don't allow them to proliferate. And then the coconut oil kind of soothes everything down. Um, you can find them at any of the pharmacies um, to clean your eyelids, but you can just do it right at bed and clean right along the top and the bottom of your eyelids and that will help significantly also with the dry eye syndrome. And how about when you're in the shower taking a warm cloth, a wet cloth, and pulling your eye and just cleaning it like this, making sure your yeah. eyes close, of course, so you don't scratch the, the front surface of the eye called the cornea. We don't want to, do, we don't want to cause any corneal abrasions. Yeah, we don't need any abrasions with the with after hours, right, Dr. Glenn? No. So what we do um, is in the shower, yeah, just obviously take that. Just be more conscious. Um, of where you're cleaning. And the other thing that we can kind of come back to is heat is really, really good. So when we're talking about adding drops, just doing a heat mask or a warm compress, even five to eight minutes a day can make a huge difference. So again, if you think of these glands, if they get stagnant during the day, they kind of are like hardened butter, right? We want that oil to be very secretive. So when we're, we want it to melt, we want it to be more like melted butter. And so if we're not blinking, those glands, again, they get clogged and all of the oil gets really hardened. So just by bringing heat to those glands, you're melting out that oil. So when you blink, it gets secreted properly. So that can actually replace some eye drops as well by just doing a heat compress. I noticed patients love those masks, those brutal masks they put on their eyelid. It How feels good. experience with that? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, it, exactly. It feels good. Pop it in the microwave for 20 seconds. Just lay there and make your kids do something else for five to six minutes. Just give yourself a little spa day at the end of the day. Um, so it can really be beneficial in multiple areas. You mentioned before meibomian gland dysfunction. So that's something that we see very commonly as a problem with people's eyelids. Explain again what that is and how you think it's best treated. So membomian gland dysfunction is when we talk about these little glands, they're vertical glands that run on the bottom of your lid and on the top of your lid. And so when we blink, we pull out the gland or the oil from the glands. So membomian gland dysfunction is when either the glands are hardened or they've atrophied 
and they've gone away. So now we don't have these glands anymore. So meibomian gland dysfunction, we're seeing it earlier and earlier. So I have like seven or eight year old kids because I check glands on every single person now that they don't even have any glands. Um, and so that's because we're putting devices in front of our kids between two, three, four, five, six years old, where they're just staring all day and not getting this um, effect. So meibomian gland dysfunction, how you treat it, again, is this warm compress. So just five to 10 minutes a day of just taking a heat, and it's gotta be a certain amount of heat, right? So 102 degrees to 104 degrees is what we need to actually melt out the mybum in the glands to get it secreted properly. So in Florida, everything cools off so quickly, we can't, it's hard to keep um, like a washcloth hot. And so that's where I recommend getting a specific mask you can pop in the microwave that's also washable um, to just put on there that actually keeps that heat. Um, there's some really cool masks as well that you can plug into your computer um, or plug into a device that actually heats up um, and stays hot to that level. So you want it to get it to be about 104 to 110 degrees um, to meet out, to um, get that oil secreted out. So the kids that are losing their glands, do you think they could come back? I am sad to say if we don't even have them stimulated, it's really, really hard to get something to grow back if it's dead, right? Um, if you kind of think of it like a plant, if we didn't water it and it died, it's really hard to do that because we don't even have the seed planted anymore. So that's where we have to be really, really careful on device time um, in our children and be more conscious of it as um, humans, right? <laughs> so uh, we've all been at restaurants where you see an entire family on all of their devices where they don't even look up from each other and talk. So we have to be more conscious as a civilization on what we're doing with devices. So let's shift a little bit toward myopia. Uh, because of all the screen time, kids are becoming more nearsighted. Back in 1900, probably th about 3% of the people were nearsighted or had myopia. Now it's about 40%, 42% and it's projected to even go up much higher as time goes on over the next 20 years or so. First, explain what is nearsighted, nearsighted or myopia? Awesome, myopia, I love myopia. Um, I'm actually a very high myope or nearsighted person myself. So I got my first pair of glasses in second grade because my parents, we were driving on a drive to South Dakota and I said, hey mom, look at that sheep over there. And she goes, uh, we got a problem because that sheep is a cow. So either she can't see or we have some other things going on. Um, and that's when I actually received my first pair of glasses. So nearsightedness or myopia means you can see up close, but everything at a distance from arm's length or so, depending on your number, so zero to minus 10, right, can't see far away. So especially in to put this perspective of kids, when you're sitting in the front of the classroom, yes, you may be able to see some things. And then as we move that kid backwards, if we don't catch it early enough, they can't see the board. And I actually got caught in that where I was having trouble learning how to read because I couldn't see the board. So it's something as simple as that. We wanna get these kids checked early and then monitor them, um, especially as because we're seeing this huge uptake in myopia. We've got environmental things at play. We have genetics at play, which is why in the early 1900s, everybody was outside, right? We were farmers, we were outside, we weren't on devices, there was no television, right? And then obviously we have the invention of the radio and TV, which now brings everybody inside. And now you see this growth of myopia. 
And now we're seeing it even more because our kids aren't outside. So it's a multifactorial that we're kind of have this perfect storm thing going on um, of why we're seeing this big uptick for kids. So we're not outside. We're looking at digital devices. And if we get back to the meibomian gland, just for a second. So the kids are losing their meibomian glands. What's going to happen 10, 15, 20 years from now? I mean, is it going to be where everyone's going to be dependent on artificial tears? or? And what do you think about expressing the meibomian glands as far as expression goes? Because that's big now in a lot of optometric practices where we see that the glands are starting to die off and they're clogged. And now we have these special techniques to express them. What, what's your opinion of that? And what do you think 10, 15 years from now, what's going to happen? Well, in kids, again, I think we have to be conscious as a society on what we're doing. The pediatric um, guidelines for screen time and device time is any kid under the age of two should have no devices in front of them. Between two and four years old, it should be no more than 30 minutes a day. And between two to five, no more than an hour. And over six years old, it should be limited to about two hours. None of us are doing that. Um, and I have a four-year-old. My four-year-old, the only thing that he has ever, he's never held the phone. The only thing that we do is because my parents live in Colorado and I'm in Florida is FaceTime. And I'm there with him while he's doing it. We just can't shove devices in front of these kids because of those things that it's doing, right? So it's making them, if you think of it too, as the distance factor. So there's something called the Harmon distance, which is between your, um, your chin and your elbow. Your devices should not be in front of your elbow. And so you're seeing all these kids with devices, not only because their arms are a little bit shorter at that age, so their distance just really can't be that far, right? So that's where we're seeing this huge uptick in that. So be more conscious of what you're doing. And especially now with online schooling, we have to be even more conscious to undo what we're doing. Then with these glands, with expression, again, that heat is what we need to express the glands. And so if we do express the glands, we have to bring some heat to them. So gland expression is huge because we want to get the, get these glands moving. We got to get that old oil out. And so I think there is a place for gland expression. But again, we have to be careful that we're developing these glands because if we're not developing the glands, we're not going to have anything to express. So we're going to be dealing here in the next 15 to 20 years, even my 20-year-olds, they look like they have glands of somebody that should be 75 years old. So we're seeing because they were in that group um, of digital devices being given at such a young age that their glands have not really developed. And that's really hard to bring back. So there might be some devices that we kind of wear that secrete oil if you think about it. Um, you can't be sitting there putting in artificial tears all day because um, that's just annoying. So it may come in forms of like a bandage contact lens, which is what we have to do on dry eye patients that are very severe. Um, so again, be more conscious of what you're doing. So to summarize, what are, what are some things that people could do to prevent those glands from shriveling up? So there's little things like even just putting a little sticky note on your, on your, um, on your computer while you're working that says blink, something as basic as that um, can make you realize what you need to do, setting a timer, getting outside, getting up. Um, and, you know, again, rolling your shoulders back, taking a couple deep breaths and really doing an integrated approach because this just is not your eyes that's being hurt here. And this is a whole body thing. 
Um, the eyes are obviously a window to your soul, so we can see things in your eyes um, that's happening in the other parts of your body, like diabetes and things like that. So getting your comprehensive eye exams is very important, especially for your young little ones. You want to get your kids examined at about six months old to make sure everything's developing properly. Then again, between two and three years old, and then going by the recommended guidelines here um, to catch our kids before they need glasses. So you said when you were a kid, you were about minus six. You're no, about was, now. You're about minus six. Yeah, now, so now I'm about a minus six. Now we could do things where, as doctors, to prevent the progression of myopia. Now, so sometimes patients say, "Well, he's already nearsighted. He's three. Does it pay to even slow it down at this point?" And what's the answer to that? Yes, 100% yes. You need to slow this progression. So as somebody who is fully dependent, and so is my husband, so I'm a minus six, my husband's a minus 650, which is, I'm very dependent on glasses. I can't see more than, you know, a couple inches in front of my face. Um, so if we both lose our glasses and can't find our glasses in the morning, that's a fun show because um, one of us has to make it to the bathroom and obviously put in our contacts before we can help the other one. Um, and then having a four-year-old son, there's things now that we can do to even prevent the onset of myopia, like getting outside more often, finding out where they are in their onset, and then delaying this onset. If you're already nearsighted, if I was a minus 250 when I was in second grade, I could have stayed a minus 250 and actually enjoyed being a minus 250, because when we all have more birthdays in our 40s is why we need reading glasses, right? The lens inside of the eye can't accommodate or focus anymore, which is why little myopes or minus ones to minus twos have a built-in pair of reading glasses. So when you, there is something we can do for those three, four, five, six-year-olds. It includes something like drops, a specialty contact lens that they can wear at night, or even now we have an FDA approval um, of a lens that you can wear during the day to help slow down that progression of myopia. Why we want a slow progression is because the eye, if you think of it like a fitted bed sheet, the retina is that tissue in the back of the eye. What happens with nearsighted or myopia is the eye grows. So that's called axial length. So we're looking at this elongation of the eye. So if you think about it with glasses, right? If you put a pair of glasses in front of a kid, they can see clearly because the retina is in focus. If you move the retina back or the eye grows, you refocus the eye, which is stronger glasses or thicker glasses. You move the eye back again, thicker glasses again. We don't want to get thick glasses because now that retina is being stretched. Back to my bed sheet analogy, right? If you're pulling a bed sheet, you're pulling that tissue to get it over the bed. We're doing the same thing to the retina by pulling or elongating that eye, which leads to things like glaucoma, macular degeneration, or myopic maculopathy, or tearing of the retinal cells, and things like retinal detachments and retinal tears, which is obviously the bad, bad things that come. Um, of that ripping effect. And so every single diopter matters in this case. And every year we can delay this onset is huge on the back end. So if I could have been, you know, seven years old and I delayed my onset of myopia by eight to eight years or nine years old, I would have ended up to be like a minus three or a minus four. So the more, the earlier we get diagnosed with myopia, the more we grow, right? And so that's where we want to slow this down and catch it early. So explain the medical side effects to having 
a large amount of myopia as myopia increases other than retinal, you mentioned retinal detachment, but what other medical side effects are there as the myopia increases? So some other medical side effects when you go over this danger zone. Um, so the eye is supposed to be about 24 millimeters long. Um, and we, when we go over 26 millimeters, which could be happening in a very low myope, by the way, it's not just the strength of your glasses, it's how long your eye is. And so when we go over those things like retinal detachments, which again is that tearing or that where the retina just kind of falls off and we have to reattach it, then you get things like glaucoma, um, which means that your peripheral vision actually decreases here, kind of to where you're looking through a straw so you can't drive anymore. Um, and then things like myopic maculopathy, which is that ripping of the retina or the, of the, or the uh, macula. The macula is the part of the eye that we see 20-20 with. So if we tear those cells apart and they're not connected anymore, we have no function to get our image from the retina to the brain. And so if we lose that retinal connection right there, that's where we're in a world of hurt. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Thank you for tuning in to the Open Your Eyes podcast. If you like the video you're watching, please hit the like button. Also hit subscribe for weekly new episodes of the podcast along with pod winks and bonus content. All right, let's get back to the show. And even cataracts, because if, you're, if your number is three and it goes to the number of minus five, it increases the risk of cataracts, macula, myopic macular degeneration, glaucoma, retinal detachment, each one over 70%. Correct. That's exactly right. And that's what we want to avoid. So the earlier we can get these kids treated, the better off we're going to be. And that's, I think, what's important is when we're talking to the kids and the parents, if you've got one or two myopic parents, you're going to be on your kid a little bit more um, and getting them regular eye exams, right? Just like we go to the dentist every six months and we're brainwashed to think that that is what we need because it is. feels good to go to the dentist, get your teeth cleaned, right? Same thing for your eyes. So we've got to start talking to our pediatricians and making sure that we're getting a comprehensive eye exam, which includes not only checking the focus or checking for a prescription, making sure that the eyes are aligned properly, make sure that the eyes are working together properly, which can lead to other things. And then obviously the health of the eye. So as we've talked about just on the surface of the eye, what we can see, think about what's inside of the eye that we're missing if we don't get regular comprehensive eye exams. You mentioned your eyes working together, something that optometrists checked for. How does that affect reading and reading comprehension? Yeah, so reading comprehension is a big one. So if you think about it, your eyes are a teaming system. So we have an aiming system, which is the eyes are aligned. And then we have a focus system, which means the eyes are working together. So there's two points of focus, um, and there, or there's actually two systems that are aligned, our alignment and our focus. If the alignment system isn't working, so if our eyes cannot concentrate on words that we're reading, then our focusing system will kind of take over and work harder. So then you get tired. Some things that kids are doing is in second and third grade, they're, you'll see that they'll kind of use their finger to track across. We should actually, that's good in the beginning to learn how to read, but we should lose that habit and our eyes should be able to jump from word to word to word. Um, if you see that that goes on past third or fourth grade, there may be an eye tracking problem. 
um, as well as a focusing system, if we cannot focus our eyes on a point, then again, our focusing system will overwork. This is called convergence insufficiency, which we can train our eyes and actually do some vision therapy to where we're not just throwing a pair of glasses on a kid hoping it will work. So there's treatments to these things. And we wanna make sure that the kids are successful in school by allowing them the proper tools and that being eyes, right? One in four kids have an undiagnosed vision problem, which can lead to things like ADHD. If my kid cannot focus on a, on a piece of paper or read something to comprehend it, they're going to be bouncing off of the walls because they just can't focus. So if your child is, is dealing with something like that, make sure you get their eyes checked. It could be something so simple um, is that they're not focusing right, they're, they're, um, their aiming system isn't working right, or they're just, they can't see, as you saw kind of with me as a kid. So once we got that corrected, there, I didn't have to have a tutor anymore. I think a really good test for parents is having your kid read out loud. If your kid reads out loud and skips around a lot and misreads and skips sentences, that's a real good indication to get your get the child's eyes examined to make sure they don't have one of these functional eye problems that could be helped with eye therapy or even special glasses maybe with prism to make it so the kids uh, reading comprehension would be better. Exactly. So when we get back to getting back to myopia, how much of it is hereditary? So if you've got two myopic parents, your child is at about a five to six times greater risk of being myopic. If you've got one nearsighted parent, your kid is at about a two to three times greater risk of being nearsighted. And if you don't have any myopia in your family, if your kid spends more than three hours, one and a half to three hours on a device and less than 30 minutes outside a day, regardless of anything else, parental myopia, they're actually at a two to six or a two to four times greater risk of developing myopia. And so, yes, it's genetic but there's also this screen time, outdoor time that we're really not talking about enough um, and holding people accountable for, to be quite honest, um, that we have to talk about. Let's talk about some other cultures. What are they doing to help prevent myopia? Yeah, so in parts of Asia, um, parts of Singapore, or in Singapore, parts of Asia, um, they've been doing myopia management for a very, very long time. So we are very, very far behind in the US as far as treating myopia. Um, they've got, you know, in Singapore, over 90% of the kids are on a special drop um, to either prevent it from coming or prevent it from getting worse. And it's a huge issue public health-wise in these parts of the area because if your risk of, my, of retinal detachment when you're a minus six increases by 126 times if you're over a minus seven, 40, or sorry, 44 times. If you're over a minus seven, you have a 44 times greater risk of having a retinal detachment. And over a minus six, that's 21 times. And so if you have a retinal detachment, there's only a certain amount of time, which is less than 24 hours, to actually get a surgical procedure to reattach the retina to prevent the blood flow from being cut off. In parts of Asia, they don't have great healthcare to get in to see the doctor. Um, like they need to. And so we have a lot of blindness that's happening that could be completely preventable if we catch this early and delay the treat and delay the um, onset and delay the progression. I see that kids in Asia, they use a special bar to make sure that they keep that, their distance or the special, the special clips 
explain what that is. Yeah, so there's um, an image here that you have, they have bars at their um, desk, so they can't get so close to it. The other thing that they do in Asia is there's these little clips that can go on the side of the glasses, which then go to an app. It shows the parents how long the kid was outside, if their head was tilted at a certain angle, if they are too close to their paper, um, and it also vibrates if the kid has been staring at something for too long, if their head has been tilted for too long, or if they're sitting too close to things. And so I think we're gonna start to see a lot more devices like that infiltrate into the US um, as we get further and further down this myopia road. I, I think there was a, a fascinating study out of, uh, out of eight, Singapore versus Sydney, Australia. Can you explain that study? It's, that, that really is really fascinating to me. Yeah, so the Singapore-Sydney study, what they found is they studied people of Chinese descent and they had the same parental myopia in each group. The Sydney study, they found that the kids were outside about 30 hours per week. And in the Singapore study, in Singapore, they were only outside about 23 hours per week. So not that much difference, about a, what, a six hour difference. However, what they found, or sorry, I got that backwards. In Sydney, they, the kids spent 30 hours up close in Sydney. And in Singapore, they spent 24 hours up close. And in Sydney, they were outside 13.75 hours or close to 14 hours a week. Where in Singapore, they were only outside three hours per week. So in Sydney, we had more near work, but more outdoor time. In Singapore, we had about the same near work, but way outside less. And they found that the myopia prevalence in the Sydney kids was only 3%, where the myopia prevalence in the Singapore kids was 29%. And so again, when we're talking about the outdoor time, that's where it comes from. So it has been studied, it has been shown to prevent the onset of myopia, which is what we want. So again, when we're throwing devices in front of three or four or five or six-year-olds, we're doing them a huge disservice um, and we have to be more conscious. So when kids go to the pediatrician, they use the pediatricians use these height and weight charts. Exactly. Now we have charts now from myopia. If you could explain that. Yeah, so you know, I'll brag a little bit here. My kid is in the 95 percentile for height, he's in the 50 percentile for weight. Um, and that's something that we all kind of hang our hat on, right? On how tall the kid is gonna grow. Well, we have the same thing for myopia. If you've got a five-year-old that gets their first pair of glasses, they're going to end up to be around a minus six or a minus seven. If you have a, a six-year-old that gets glasses or a seven-year-old glasses, it's that same chart because we're growing, right? And so we're delaying that growth. So that's the same thing that we have to start talking about. We have things like a calculator where we can put in the genetics of the patient, the age that they are, and the pair of glasses or the prescription in the glasses. And we can actually see where they're projected to be or to end up. And by controlling that by 50 to 60%, we can really change that kid's life and what they have to worry about in the future as they have more birthdays in their 20s and 30s and 40s. When we talk about solutions for prevention, tell me about pre-myopia. That's a new concept, you know, like pre-diabetes. How about pre-myopia? Yeah, pre-myopia is actually a really, really fun one. And that's why it's really, really important to get your three or four or five-year-olds checked and to get them checked regularly. So when we're talking about the delay of onset, just like pre-diabetes, we can intervene and we can intervene early and we can make changes before you become dependent on a medication to help with your blood sugar. Same thing with myopia. If we catch these kids early, we can intervene early 
talk about the outdoor time, talk about the screen time. I felt sound like a broken record, right? Get outside, put your screens down, <laughs> same thing. So we can even do some study. There's some studies going on that if we've got two myopic parents or we know that their sibling is actually myopic, we can start them on a drop a little earlier. So these are all things that are gonna come more mainstream as we see more studies come out about myopia. But the main thing, get your eyes checked, get them checked early. Um, my kid is actually falling into that category and I've been watching him really, really closely to intervene um, before he needs glasses. And that would actually be the goal. So when you go to the doc, the eye doctor, what are some of the tests they're going to do to determine whether or not you have myopia, you're nearsighted, and, what, and whether or not we could do something to prevent? That's a great question. So when we go to the eye doctor, we're checking a couple of things. Obviously, we're checking the prescription or the refraction is what we call it. That's when people are asking you one or two, which is better, which is everybody's favorite part of the eye exam, right? I'm just kidding. It's absolutely everybody's worst nightmare. Um, we lead you in the right direction. So when you're talking about a six-month-old or a three-year-old, I actually don't need their responses. So what I'm looking at is that the reflection that I'm getting in the retina and that feedback is what, I'm, what I can put in front of the eyes as far as the prescription is concerned. A way to, to, to describe what we're looking at is when you're driving at night and you shine a light in like a dog's eyes that's, that's being walked, right? You get that red reflex that the dog is looking back at you. We're looking at that reflex and that reflex tells us where the retina is falling. Is it in front? Is it on where it's supposed to? Or is it in the back? That's exactly what we're looking at. So a two, three, or four-year-old, I don't need their responses at all to, to figure out what prescription they need. Same thing for adults, right, Carrie? You can actually, we don't need your responses. We just kind of lead you in the right direction. But that's what we're trained to look at is that, act, that reflex. So talk about measuring axial length, OCT, uh, cycloplegic refraction. What are those? Why are they important? Yeah, so... In kids, what we want to do is actually relax the focusing system. So this is where we're going to use a special drop that's different than what most um, adults have to go through with the dilation. It's the same thing, except we're looking at two things. We're looking at the health or the retina, so the optic nerve, the macula, looking at all the blood vessels and making sure everything is nice and healthy and developed. And then we're also looking at the refraction once again. Unfortunately, with kids, when we put them in, a, in front of a machine, you actually focus more and that can actually show or throw off our prescriptions. And so what we have to do is dilate the eyes, but we're looking at two things, obviously the health, and then we're looking at the focusing system again, what it's doing when it's relaxed. And that's where we can get a better refraction. So it is important to dilate kids. Um, I absolutely refuse to hold kids down. So there is a specific way that we can get drops in. That's not, you know, I was that kid that they just like squeeze drops into mm -hmm. my eyes. Um, so I refuse to do that. So we have a very easy way to get the drops in. That's not um, emotional for the kid um, or scary to the kid. So it's important to find somebody that enjoys kids, that sees a lot of kids, um, that uh, can get the proper measurements. So that's what the cycloplegic refraction Wait, is for. So what's the secret? What's the way you do it to get the drops in? Yeah, what we do is we make the kids very, very comfortable. Most of the time we have them bring like they're a toy that they love so we can show that how we're gonna put the drops in. And then we have them just gently close their eyes. We place a drop in the corner. 
of each eye and then have them blink and open a couple of times and the drop falls right in. That actually is great for adults as well. I don't hold anybody down in my practice. Um, and so you have, especially men for some reason, you guys really are squeamish when it comes to eyes. Um, so we'll do the same um, way to instill drops in adults as well. And same thing at home. If you are a glaucoma patient or a dry eye patient and you just can't get drops in, um, one of my favorite episodes is Friends. Um, when Rachel has an eye problem, she gets eye drops and Monica has to put the drops in her eyes. <laughs> it's actually a really fun clip to watch. Um, so you can, again, just in, close your eyes, just gently place one drop in each eye, open your eyes, blink a couple times and it falls right in and then everybody's happy. That's a great trick. I use the same one. That's excellent. So when we determine someone has myopia, child has myopia, and we want to measure the axial length, how could we do that? Because, you know, that's important. You know, normal is about 23, 24 millimeters. You know, she could be, we don't want to see 27. We want to prevent them from getting to 27. So what, what kind of technique do you use to measure that? There's a couple different techniques. Um, we have special instruments where you're just actually sticking your head in an instrument and we can, we can actually look at the axial length that way. I measure it a little bit different in my office, which is where we're actually contacting the eye. Again, we put in these special drops. I can get these measurements in kids as young as four years old to sit still for me. Um, and we can measure from the front of the cornea or the very front surface to the retina and to determine how long that eye is. Um, and that measurements is important because there's certain times where we need to be very aggressive. And then there's certain times where we don't need to be as aggressive. And so that measurement really, really helps decide what treatment is best, not only for the patient, but for the family, because this is a full gamut treatment. Every parent is involved as well as the child. So we wanna fit the treatment to the family, which I think is important. And how about the Magic B scan? light ultrasound, the OCT? So OCT is a fun one. OCT, if you think about it, where your doctor is just looking at the icing on the cake, the OCT, actually, you get to look at the layers of the cake, and you can see which layers are um, changing or which layers need help. Um, and so that's a very fun instrument that we all have at our disposal now. And corneal topography? So corneal topography is also very important as well. So corneal topography is measuring the front surface of the eye in the refraction. So if your cornea is supposed to be like this and it's more flat, then actually the rays to the back of the eye are changed. If your cornea is supposed to be like this and it's more steep, then we again have to change the refraction. And so all of these together between a scan, topography data, refractive data, and then that cycloplegic exam, is a full exam. So it's not just looking at a machine saying which one is better, one or two. We're looking at eye teaming, we're looking at eye focus, and all of that together to come up with a plan. So now we decided that we wanted, we found somebody who's starting to get nearsighted or they have two parents that are very nearsighted and we want to do some prevention. So now there's different ways, there's three main ways, right? There's soft contact lenses, there's drops, there's gas permeable contact lenses or ortho-K, and now soon there's going to be glasses uh, that may be able to do it. Let's start off with soft contact lenses. Talk to us about that. There's one that's recently been approved by the FDA. Sometimes we use contacts that are off-label. Uh, how does that help? What's the percentage of decrease that we could get as far as the studies show? And what's your experience with these contact lenses? 
Yeah, so our experience with these contact lenses, um, I actually started wearing contact lenses in third grade. So I wanna kind of start there. Kids can be very, very successful in contact lenses. I was a cheerleader, I was, a gymna I, I was in dance, and as a gymnast, glasses just do not help in that arena. And so my mom actually made my optometrist fit me in contact lenses in third grade. Still remember her screaming at me to keep my eye open while she's trying to get this thing in. Um, but it changed my life. Um, and so kids, when your kids start asking about contact lenses, they are mature enough to do this. So this FDA approval lens is FDA approved between the ages of eight to 12 years old to help slow down the progression of myopia. In the three-year study, it showed a progression reduction of 59% um, or close to 60% in the kids not getting stronger and stronger glasses or higher and higher myopia. And also their axial length decreased by about 52%. So we were able to limit that growth. So contact lenses in kids, you can do it. And it can be life-changing, especially as kids get into fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. Kids can be mean these days, right? Um, so we don't want to, if a kid wants glasses, then that kid wants glasses. And if a kid wants contacts, that kid wants contacts. And so it's our duty as an optometrist to show that these are safe, especially that they're daily options. Meaning, you put it in in the morning, throw it out at the end of the day, so whatever attaches itself to that lens, or if there's something dirty on their hands, it's not going back into the eye. And it's actually studied that kids have less eye problems with contact lenses than adults do. So I think that's important to mention. Um, but again, if your kid is asking for contacts, then I'm a huge advocate for kids in contact lenses. The kids seem to be a lot more coordinated than adults when it comes to contact lenses. <laughs> yes, they do. You know, talking about, you know, changing kids' lives, I mean, I had a patient this week who was the opposite of nearsighted, who was farsighted, was a plus seven, who was 12 years old. He came in and he's, he's, kind of, he's wearing these big, thick glasses and he's hunched over. And I said to the father, I said, you know, if you put him in contact lenses, it's going to change his life. And he looked at me, he goes, really? He goes, yeah, you're going to see, he'll be totally different. It's going to open up his world. His side vision is going to get better. We fit him with contact lenses. He comes back to... He came back this week for the follow-up and it's like the kid is like dancing. It's like he's so happy. It really made a huge difference. So contact lenses could really change people's lives. It's an unbelievable invention. It's one of the, the, the miracles of science, I believe. I agree. I, it's my, one of my favorite parts of being an optometrist is when I put a kid, like you said, a plus six, so very they can't see far away or up close. Um, and they have very thick glasses. Same thing for myopic kids. So when you put these lenses on the kids, the faces that you get um, of them, the smiles are just, I get chills thinking about it. Um, it's just so exciting and so life-changing. So if your child's asking for it, present it. And if they're not, it's our duty as optometrists to present it as an option. Um, so don't be intimidated by, by kids in contact lenses. So if you have astigmatism, can you get contact lenses to slow the progression of nearsightedness? Yes, you can. So there's a different modality that we can use, especially for astigmatism patients. Astigmatism, everybody has a little bit of an astigmatism. And astigmatism just means that your eye, instead of being circle like a sphere or like a basketball, is shaped more like a football. So there's two different focuses that we have to correct. How we do that in myopia management is a couple of ways. One is a hard contact lens or a mold that you sleep in at night. 
which actually changes the shape of the front of the eye, similar to what LASIK does, um, except it's all, it can all be undone or reversed if we need it to be. Um, so when you go to sleep at night, you put the contact lens in, and when you wake up in the morning, you take the contact lens or the corneal mold off or ortho-K lens off, and you can see clearly without the need for daytime glasses or daytime contact lenses. Now let's talk about drops, atropine drops. This is something that's been around for a long time, but it's starting to get into favor now. How does it work? Do we even know how it works? But it seems to work very well. Yes. So atropine has been really, really picking up steam here. It's been studied um, when I was actually researching atropine. I found a paper that atropine has been studied in the, pre the prevention of progression of myopia since 1874, which is a really long time ago. Um, atropine has been around for centuries. Um, even Cleopatra used atropine to make her pupils big, so people found her more attractive. It's that same drop. So what we're doing with uh, myopia is instead of it being 1%, which is a pretty strong dose of atropine, right? We can get very blurry vision from that. It, it knocks out our focusing system. We're reducing that. We're putting 100 drops of saline with one drop or two drops of atropine to dilute this way down. What we think that it's doing is when we put the drop in at bedtime, then the drop is binding to the sclera or the white part of the eye and preventing those, the sclera from thinning or from getting longer. And so that's what we think is happening with atropine. Um, the science is still out there on how it actually is working, but that's what we think that it's doing, is binding to those receptors to prevent it from the eye from getting longer. So we're using very low dose in children. What percentage do you like to start with? And what do you think is the most effective percentage? Yeah, the most effective percentage, we're seeing a ton of studies come out um, the concentration debate is what we call it out in the field. Um, I'm starting most of my kids here at 0.025 or a little higher if we need to. Um, 0.01, it's just been a little underwhelming in studies on what it does. So what I'm starting them on is the 0.025 and then going up or down. There's a lot of factors that go into the concentration that we pick for your kid. Some of it has to do with um, how old the kid is, what the prescription is and what we're trying to prevent, how long the eye is. So do we need to be a little bit aggressive or do we not? And the other thing is um, your melanin in your eyes. So if you have a blue iris or a brown iris, um, obviously the blue irises we don't need as much. The brown irises we need a little bit more. Um, so it, there's a multifactorial things that go in to what concentration we're going to pick for the kid. So how about ortho-K, special contact lenses to slow the progression of myopia that the kids sleep in at night, they gently reshape the eye, and then in the morning they take them off and they see perfect. They don't need, many times they don't need glasses during the day. Yeah, ortho-K is a really fun one. Um, so think of it at night, you would put something in, so like a retainer, um, except it's a retainer on the eye. And what we're doing is just in the central part of the cornea is we're pushing down the top layer of the cornea by 10 microns. To put that into perspective, a human hair is about 70 microns thick. So we're suppressing or we're pushing on this tissue just very, very gently by 10 microns to mold like a minus three to a minus five. So when you take the contact lenses off in the morning or the molds off in the morning, you can see clearly far away without the need for glasses or contact lenses. 
this modality is really good on parents that actually want to monitor what their kids are doing. Um, so it's great at bedtime. You have full control at home to make sure that the lenses are being cared for properly, that the kids are wearing them properly. Um, and it's a really, really fun thing on day one or day two after you've worn the lenses when we actually, the kids now can see sometimes 2020 by day two or day three. Um, so when you take these kids back and they can't see the big E on the chart that everybody's familiar with, and then they're reading the 2020 line, you know, three days later after wearing this lens, it can, it can again be life-changing. These are great for people that live around a lot of water. So if you're a swimmer or something like that, we obviously don't want contact lenses to come into contact with water. Um, so it's great for swimmers, great for athletes that don't want to have something falling out of their eyes um, and for specific sports. Um, so it's a great, great option, especially as young as six, seven, eight years old. Um, you can get these lenses in these little kids. So if you're using the, the soft technique to slow the progression of myopia or ortho or using drops or even a combination of some of these, how often would you see a patient? Is it every three months, every four months? How often should they be seen? Yeah, so we make sure that they're successful. So again, this is a, it's a family thing that's going to go into treating myopia. Um, we see them if they're in a contact lens, either one week later to make sure that they're successful with it, that they don't need more training. Then we'll see them about four weeks later to make sure, again, that they're being successful, that they're using their drops. I can't tell you how many times I've prescribed drops and seen a patient back that just never got them. Um, and a benefit... <laughs> And I'll just throw this out there. If you're going back for a contact lens evaluation to your doctor, make sure you wear your contacts. I can't tell you how many times a patient will show up for a contact lens follow-up without the contacts in their eyes. So it's kind of like going for an oil change but not taking your car with you. So make sure for a contact lens follow-up, unless you're having a problem, please wear your lenses in. Um, so public service announcement for our contact lens patients. Um, but when then I'll see them about three months later, six months later, nine months, and then after that first year, and I'll mention here, um, it's it very, very important to start the treatment and start the treatment early. Every year that we wait hurts us on the back end. So if your doctor mentions this and mentions that this could be a good fit for your child, the sooner we get the treatment, the better we're going to be. Every year we wait is detrimental on the back end. So even if we can get one or two years of treatment, we have changed the trajectory for where that eye is going to end up. So if, you, if it's not quite something yet or financially it's just not there for you, follow up in two or three months and revisit it. But I am a true advocate that I know that there's something we can do now. So if I see a kid that's a minus two and I say, here's your glasses, I'll see you in a year, we've done no service for that child. So this is not about just slapping a pair of glasses or slapping a pair of contact lenses on your child. It's about where this growth is going to be and how we do that together. So back in 1900, we mentioned at the beginning about 3% of the population was nearsighted. Now it's 42%. How long do you think it'll be before, and this is a philosophical question, myopia management or myopia treatment will be mainstream? Um, I think we're starting to see that shift especially now that we've got treatments that are FDA approved, which is huge. So even since I've only been doing this for five years, I learned in school that there was nothing we could do. Um, and I only graduated 10 years ago. 
Um, now that that shift has changed, especially from other parts of the world where we're getting FDA approval as far as um, we'll see an FDA approved drop here so shortly, probably in the next five to seven years. We'll see obviously these contact lenses get approved, which just got approved in November of 2019, which is exciting. So I think we're gonna start to see an uptick here. It is something as physicians that we have to learn. Um, we are starting to get trained in school, which is great into the ophthalmology and optometry community together. So it is a whole approach here between pediatricians to family practitioners to retinal specialists. We're all in this together um, to not only catch these kids, because once you've got it, we got to slow it down. It's in those early ages that we have to catch it. What are the side effects of these treatments, whether we're talking drops, ortho-K, soft contact lenses? Side effects are very, very rare. Um, from the drop perspective, if it's too strong, then you can lose some of your focusing ability or you can lose, um, it's, it makes you light sensitive when you go outside. So again, we're just following to make sure that the treatment is working. Um, obviously soft contact lenses or dual focus contact lenses, there's always a risk of infection. So, but again, that's very limited. Um, if you treat if you treat the lens properly, right? If it falls on the ground, don't stick it in your mouth and put it back in your eye, like we've seen a basketball player do recently. Um, throw it out, get a new one, right? Same thing for the ortho K lenses. As long as we're treating them at night, um, and in the things is you know you don't want any letters of RSVP, so you don't want any redness, sensitivity to light, change in your vision or change in your in pain. That's when you don't put a contact lens in. So there's really little risks. Yeah, everything comes with a risk, but I think the rewards outweigh the risk. And as far as when this is going to become more mainstream, just like we, if you have a patient or your mom or dad is being treated for macular degeneration, we talk about vitamins. We prescribe vitamins all day long for patients with macular degeneration. And if we don't, we can actually get in a heap of trouble by not doing that because of the studies. Same thing for myopia. I think it's going to become that mainstream that everybody's going to need to be doing this or at least offering it and then letting the patients decide if they want to go down this route. Now there's going to be spectacle lenses, glasses that will slow the progression of myopia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's a couple different designs out there right now that are being studied. The other ones out there have been the older types of lenses that have been studied in myopia have been a little underwhelming that where they don't really treat it. Um, we need a big portion of the retina. If you think of the retina as being 360 degrees with a bullseye right in the middle, right? We want the bullseye to be very clear. And we want the periphery or one of those outer rings on a target to actually be defocused or in front of the retina. And so if we just put like a bifocal contact lens or a bifocal on a kid in a pair of glasses, not only is that kid gonna be made fun of at school, so we don't really do it that much, um, but it's only treating about 20 to 30% of the retina, if you think about it optically. So optically, if I have just a little bifocal at the bottom, those rays go up to the top, that's the only amount of treatment that I'm getting. So there's some newer lens designs that are coming out that help get 360 degrees of the focus that we actually need. So some of the results are a little underwhelming at this point. Um, so there's gonna be some newer technology that's coming out that's being studied right now that shows some promise. Anything that's FDA approved yet? Not yet. We're a ways away from that. Um, in other parts of the world, they do have things like the DIMS lens, 
and other uh, things out there to help slow down the progression. But a lot of the studies, again, have been pretty underwhelming. A lot of parents think if we undercorrect the kid, you know, <laughs> that that's going to prevent them from getting nearsighted so that we would blur them all, all day. So if their number is really three, but to give them two, they are convinced that that works. Does it? Uh, that is a great question. I'm so glad that you brought this up. This is the number one thing not to do. Um, it actually speeds up the progression of myopia. It's, it's got a two effect or a two prong effect, right? Speeds up myopia progression because we're not actually, the kid is focusing harder. And number two, the kid can't see. So you don't want to undercorrect yourself by a diopter. Um, you couldn't drive if you um, didn't correct yourself fully. And so why are we letting our kids walk around blurry? That's just not fair to them or to their vision. Um, and it 100% speeds it up. So we have to be very careful when it comes to undercorrection. Even by a quarter or 0.5 uh, makes a big difference in not only visual and function, but in also progression. So whatever you do, please do not make your doctor undercorrect your child. That is the last thing on our list and I probably would not be your doctor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about the basketball player putting the contact lens in their mouth. It, it's a funny story, but I, not too, a couple of years ago, I met somebody who was the President Reagan's eye doctor. And Reagan used to get constant eye infections and, and he wore gas permeable contact lenses and he kept putting it in his mouth to clean it. And because of that, he kept getting eye infections and they would say, President Reagan, you can't do that because you're going to keep getting eye infections. And he would not listen, and he kept getting eye infections. So. Ew, that gives me the creeps. Um, you can, there's like little solutions that you can keep in your bag. Um, but again, we don't want to clean anything. We have more bacteria in our mouth than we do on like a toilet seat. Um, so it's absolutely disgusting if you think about what you're doing. And then putting that on the tissue of your eye, um, we have little bonds that there's obviously little crevices there that these little bacteria can get into right away and can wreak havoc. Things like fungal infections or bacterial infections can get in there and really do some damage, um, especially if it's not caught early. So you never want to self-treat. If you have an eye problem, make sure you call your eye doctor and get in right away. Um, that's actually what we live for is um, to help people. Um, so not only to give them glasses or contact lenses, but to also make sure that they get treated when there is an issue. Well, I want to thank Dr. Brianna Roof for joining me today. If somebody wants to find out more information about you or get in contact with you, how can they do that? Yeah, they can use my email. Um, it's brhue at drcontactlens.com. That's drcontactlens.com. Um, you can also check out my website, which is West Broward Eye Care. We have a lot of um, different blurbs that we put up there and blogs to talk about myopia management and what's out there and new research. Um, we actually have a one page thing that you can download here that's actually going up um, today where you can actually see all of this research um, for, the, for your kids, for myopia. And then we talk a lot about the dry eye syndrome and things like that. So be more conscious, um, get outside and play. It's not gonna kill you, um, <laughs> but it might if we don't. And then um, blink. So that's really the things that we know we need to do. We just have to be more conscious. Get outside at least as much as a prisoner, right? Please. Um, it's not that hard to go outside and play. And I live in Florida, um, so it is hot, but, you know, we have ways to get outside. Um, that's very important. 
Well, Dr. Rue is a wealth of information. I want to thank you for joining me today. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.